Um, I, we're going to continue on our study of the Constitution and particularly how that pertains to us Christians and what our rights are. Um, if you missed Wednesday, then I would encourage you to listen to that message because last week we talked specifically about the First Amendment and what our free speech rights are as Christians. Um, let's open up in a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, we just thank you so much for your church. We thank you for your brethren, God. We thank you, God, that you are on the throne and nothing will ever change that. We thank you, God, that you are the almighty sovereign Lord and that you hold us and you hold tomorrow in your hands, Lord. Holy Spirit, please be here with us. Holy Spirit, please guide me, lead me, direct these words, and prepare the people's, prepare the hearts of your people to receive what you have. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, we're going to cover a lot, and I know I talk really fast, so I'm going to try and not talk so fast, but there's so much to go through, especially with what's happening right now. Um, so we're still going to be in the First Amendment, um, but we're going to focus on what's called the Establishment and the Free Exercise Clauses, okay? Um, and so can we have the... Um, First Amendment slide, please. And so we read the whole First Amendment last week, and we're just going to focus on the... Um we're just going to focus on the first part of it. And so that reads, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. So essentially what that means, the establishment of religion, that's what's called the establishment clause, but that's more commonly referred to as separation of church and state. So I'm sure most of you have heard that term before, right? That second part, the um, prohibiting the free exercise thereof, that is the free exercise clause, okay? And the free exercise clause is basically our right to freely worship Jesus according to our conscience. So that's where we get those two rights, okay? It seems super straightforward, right? So, okay, Congress can't make any laws establishing a state religion, and Congress can't make any laws infringing upon our right to worship Jesus. That sounds so straightforward, but those 16 words are the most highly debated and the most controversial words in the entire Constitution. And so we have a lot to cover to explain why that has happened, okay? Um, and so what's happened over the last 70 or so years is the courts have twisted the Establishment Clause and eroded the Constitution to turn the Establishment Clause into the removal of Jesus from our nation and the removal of Jesus from the government. And so we're going to have to spend some time talking about the history of our country and the history of the Establishment Clause because it's important that you understand what the purpose of the Establishment Clause is so you don't allow yourselves to get deceived by the world and you don't allow yourself to get bullied by the world saying you're not allowed to say that because of the establishment clause then you can say no that's actually not what the establishment clause means okay so let's get into that so that brings us could you put the title of the class back please and <laughs> and so the title of the class is proclaim liberty throughout all the land and uh the full verse of that is proclaim liberty throughout all the land and unto all the inhabitants thereof that occurs in two places in our country who knows where that occurs other than my family. <laughs> and so Sarah, who looked it up. And so, so the first place is in the Bible. That is in Leviticus 25.10. And proclaim liberty is talking, referring to the year of Jubilee, which is the year of liberty. And so what would happen during Old Testament times is every seven years, the Israelites who were in, who were in bondage to some kind of debt, they would be freed from that debt. And so the Israelites would proclaim liberty throughout all the land because they were freed from debt every seven years. That verse, Leviticus 25.10, is also, the second place, is it's also inscribed on our Liberty Bell. Our Liberty Bell is a literal bell that's in Philadelphia. It's been there since 1752. And there's actually a really funny story about that, but we just don't have time to get into it. But essentially now what the Liberty Bell represents is our American freedoms, okay? That's the proclaim liberty, proclaim the freedoms 
across our land. So why did our founding forefathers founding forefathers care so much about freedom or liberty? The reason is because they fled religious persecution from the crown. And so in order to understand the establishment clause, we have to look at it in the context of religious freedom, specifically religious freedom. Okay. So we're going to talk about that for a little bit. So in the early 17, in the early, in the late 16, early 1700s, the Puritans, those were the original settlers who came from England to America, they came here to flee the Church of England. The Church of England was the literal church in England. Um, and the king was the head of that church. So that would literally be like Jay Inslee being the head of our church and the Seattle City Council governing what our church does. Okay. And so, so that's what, that's what the Puritans suffered under. And so they had to, if they defied King George and you had to be a member of the Church of England, you had to be a member of Church of England. And if you defied King George, you suffered persecution, you suffered death, you suffered torture, you suffered imprisonment. It was horrific. And so they they risked everything to cross the ocean and come to the new world. The new world is America, of course. And so when they came here, it was like, praise God, we can freely worship Jesus because the Puritans read their Bibles and they knew it was not biblical to worship the king. And it was not biblical to have a king be the head of the church. And so we have to understand that to understand the establishment clause. So knowing that history... What does that tell us about the Establishment Clause? The separation of church and state. What it tells us about the Establishment Clause is, like we were talked about last week, the enemy has always used the government to try and slow down the spread of the gospel. And what's happening now is the government is using the Establishment Clause to silence Christians. And the government is using the Establishment Clause to say, you Christians cannot freely exercise your freedom of religion. And so... Um, we're going to talk about, okay, so the way that we ended up in that position is, um, it's called the, uh, balancing test. Okay. So what the courts do is instead of just reading the constitution for what it says is they do what's called, <laughs> if they do what's called a balancing test. And so the balancing test is they look at the establishment clause and they balance that with your free exercise and your free speech rights. Okay. And so the court is like, well, where should we give priority? And so what that looks like is the courts literally saying, okay, yes, Christian, I know you have a free speech right to preach the gospel. And I know you have a freedom of religion right to worship Jesus, but you can't do it in a way that violates the establishment clause. And so what has that looked like over the last 70 years or so? Could I have the, um, the in schools slide, please? Um, Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. Uh, one thing that I want to get into for a little bit um, is because this is highly, highly, highly debated is a lot of lawyers disagree with what I'm saying to you right now, okay? I say to you, the Establishment Clause was about um, the state cannot endorse a particular religion. Most lawyers will say, no, that's not true. It's supposed to be a separation of church and state, which means no religion in the state at all, okay? I'm telling you they're wrong. How do I know that they're wrong? I know that they're wrong because I've read the correspondences and the letters that the founding forefathers wrote to one another and wrote to the other colonists to tell them, let's revolt against the king. And so we are going to spend some time reading that because it's important that you understand that you understand, like, we are supposed to be able to worship Jesus freely here. And that is massively under attack. And we need to do something about that. And you can't do anything about that if you, if you, if you're ignorant of the, the state of our, uh, religious attack, right? So the first thing that we're going to read is um, 
so Samuel Adams, he was one of our, one of our founding forefathers, and he was a statesman, and he's really uh, responsible for kind of gathering together all the colonists and encouraging them to revolt against the king, okay? And so what he did is he, in 1772, he wrote a letter, and it was basically letting the colonists know, hey, remember, we have rights that derive from God and only God. And those rights are inalienable. That means nobody can take them away. And so you, colonists, we need to stop allowing the king who's across the ocean to tell us how to worship Jesus. And so this is what he wrote to the colonists. And so this is a letter um, from 1772, and it's entitled Our Rights as... Um, our rights, the rights of the colonists as Christians, okay? So our right, oh, could I have the, thank you. So our rights may be best understood by reading and carefully studying the institutes of the great lawgiver. Who's the great lawgiver? It's capitalized. It's God, right? And head of the Christian church. Who is that? Jesus Christ, which are to be found clearly written and promulgated in the New Testament. So we're going to stop right there for a second. So Samuel Adams said, hey, guys, as we're establishing our new nation and we're figuring out how to govern ourselves, we need to look to the Bible for our instructions. Okay. And then he goes on and says that 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 there shall be liberty of conscience allowed in the worship of God to all Christians. So there was an assumption, there was an expectation that everybody in this country was a Christian. And, you know, not necessarily a regenerated Christian. I mean, if you listen to pastors preaching from even then, they were preaching sin and repentance and things of that sort. But at a minimum, everyone at least acknowledged that God was the creator of the heavens and the earth and that we owe everything that we have to the almighty God. There was at least that assumption. And so the establishment clause is, hey, the state can't tell you what denomination you're going to be. We're all Christians. We all serve Jesus Christ. But if you want to be Presbyterian, if you want to be Baptist, if you want to be non-denominational, that's your right. But we're Christians and we acknowledge that everything that we have comes from he who created us. And so, and we're so far from that now because now we're get, we'll get into this later, but now the cases have basically eliminated Jesus Christ from, from our nation. And we look at the fruit that's being born from that. And so, okay, so the people who disagree with me, um, they say, well, Samuel Adams didn't write the Constitution, and well, that was just his opinion, and you know, that's not representative of what the other colonists think, and they're wrong, because let's look at what the person who actually wrote the Bill of Rights said, okay? So James Madison wrote the Bill of Rights. He's one of my favorite presidents. He was our fourth president. Um, he served two terms, and uh, he wrote the Bill of Rights. Okay, so, so remember, guys. The Constitution uh, was originally, we talked about this last week, how the Constitution was written to establish the federal government and the federal military, and then the forefathers realized, wait a minute, the government might have too much power now, so let's write the Bill of Rights to make sure the power stays with us, the people. And so James Madison wrote the Bill of Rights, and just like today, um, when he wrote that, he had to go to the House of Representatives, and he had to say, he had to pitch his idea to the House and say, guys, agree with me on this and let's ratify this and get it a part of the constitution. Okay. So I have the speech that he gave to the founding forefathers, to his fellow forefathers back in 1789. And can I have the James Madison quote, please? And so what he said 
um, is I will state my reasons for why I think it proper to propose amendments. Okay, those amendments for the Bill of Rights, right? Then he goes on for a long time. But then as it pertains to specifically the Establishment Clause, he then says, the civil rights of none shall be abridged on account of religious belief or worship, nor shall any national religion be established, nor shall the full and equal rights of conscience be in any manner or in any pretext infringed. So what he says there, he deals with don't infringe upon our rights to worship Jesus three times. The only time he says anything about the state is, by the way, there can't be a national religion. And so again, it's there can't be the King George who decides what the church is going to be. We can be whatever Christian denomination we want to be. Okay, does that make sense? And so the last thing that I want to read about the history of our founding documents is um, when James Madison first was inaugurated, uh, when he first, during his first term, he gave an inaugural address at the, at, after he was elected. And I just want to read the end of that speech, okay? So he's speaking to the American people. And this is relevant because as we'll see in a little bit, the government is taking Jesus, has taken Jesus out of our schools, out of our courts, out of our, out of our nation. And, uh, they're doing it under the authority of the Establishment Clause. And so I want to read to you what our fourth president, who wrote the Establishment Clause, said when he addressed our nation, okay? He said, In these, my... In these, my confidence will under every difficulty be placed in the guidance of the almighty being whose power regulates the destiny of nations and to whom we are bound to address our devote gratitude for the past as well as our fervent supplication and best hopes for the future. So he who wrote the establishment clause said... As I'm leading this nation, I'm going to turn to the Almighty God for guidance, and I'm going to offer him my prayers and supplications, my fervent prayers and supplications, in hopes that he will lead me and lead our nation. That The man who said that did not write something that means we should not have any religion in our government. Okay? Do you see why they're wrong, the people who say? So, where does that leave us now with the Establishment Clause? That leaves us with the balancing test, okay, what I was alluding to earlier. And so, um, the balancing test is really bad. It's bad for, for us. Um, it essentially, I don't have a lot of space here. Okay, so, um, if I could have the slide about the, uh, in the schools. And so, um, so the establishment clause mostly affects people who work for the government, okay? So what I'm about to say right now, I'm going to divide it into two categories. First in the schools, and then all the other government employees, okay? So at this point, over the last 70 or so years, with the courts twisting and eroding the Constitution, we've come to the point now where the standard is, uh, if you are in the public schools, then as a Christian, you, if you exercise your free speech rights, or if you exercise your freedom of religion, that violates the Establishment Clause. Okay, and so what that looks like is this. These are actual cases from across the country. That looks like a teacher who taught fifth grade, and in his fifth grade classroom every day there was about 20 minutes of silent reading. So the students sat at their desk and read. He would sit at his desk and silently read his Bible. There was no evidence that he ever preached from his Bible, that he ever talked to a child about his Bible, that he ever mentioned anything about it. He literally sat silently at his desk and read his Bible, and that was prohibited. This also looks... 
because it violated the Establishment Clause. It also looks like voluntary prayer in school. In New York, there was a school there that opened their day in prayer, but it was voluntary, and there was zero evidence that a student was ever reprimanded or even ostracized for not participating in that voluntary prayer, and the court said that was prohibited. And the specific ruling in the court was that the presence of the Bible violated the Establishment Clause, and the presence of prayer violated the Establishment Clause. So how could we have gone from the person who wrote the Constitution saying, I'm turning to the Almighty God for guidance, and also said there can't be a state established a national religion to then even just the presence violates it, okay? And so that's how it affects teachers. Now, how does it affect our students? Well, this was a girl, I can't remember the jurisdiction, but this was a girl who, she was in ninth grade, and the whole class was given an assignment to write a research paper, and they could pick the topic. So she wrote she chose to write her research paper on the life of Jesus Christ. The teacher forbid her to submit that paper, and she was given an F for that class. The, co- the parents sued. This made it all the way up to, I can't, I can't remember the jurisdiction, but this made it all the way up to the Court of Appeals. And the court ruled against her and said to this girl, yeah, you have a, a, a right to free speech, and you have a right to freely exercise your religion, but the teacher has a right to decide what you learn. So that should enrage the Christian, right? Because, I mean, that is absurd, okay? And so, so where does that leave us today? Um, in the schools, it leaves us with, we have a battle to fight, Christian. Okay, our children are massively under attack. Everywhere they go, they're being indoctrinated. It's no longer even being indoctrinated of the things of the world. They're being indoctrinated of the things of the wicked. Okay, and and a lot of us are too comfortable in our complacency to be willing to arise and fight what everybody else is doing under the attack that our children are suffering. And so what does that mean for us as parents and for those who don't have children yet? This is your time to start preparing, get your heart right, get your mind right so that you can fight against this indoctrinization. But for us who have children, this is the time, man. We need to be vigilant. We need to be sober-minded. We need to be grounded, immovable, steadfast in his word and and rooted in his word so that we are prepared to be able to teach our children. What did Moses write in Deuteronomy? He didn't say, introduce your children to Jesus. He didn't, he said, impress upon them to love the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And now more than ever, we need to prepare this next generation, man. The, the, the day is near. Okay. And the battle is here. So get prepared. I've been hearing that for like almost the last year, get prepared, get prepared, get prepared. And so, um, now for everybody else who works in the government. So like literally everybody else. So police officers, firemen, DMV workers, everything. It's not much better. So basically what happened in this case is um, there were two gals who worked for uh, the Department of Health and um, one was a registered nurse. The other one was an ASL interpreter. Okay. The nurse was doing hospice care for a gay couple and one of the men was dying of AIDS. Her testimony was that they were just, and this is all, all, both parties testified that they were just having a casual conversation and the topic of religion came up. And so the woman testified that when they started talking about religion, she felt a prodding from the Holy Spirit to preach the gospel. Remember, this man is a homosexual and he was dying, okay? And so she obeyed the Holy Spirit, she preached the gospel, and she was suspended without pay for this, okay? The other woman, the ASL interpreter, she was... um 
treating or interpreting at a mental health facility. And she had met a woman there who was struggling with something that the interpreter had previously struggled with, but the Lord had delivered her. And so she felt a prodding from the Holy Spirit to preach that redemption in Jesus Christ, right? So she said to this woman, she said, um, oh, I know exactly what you're going through. And, and I've been there, but Jesus redeemed me. Jesus healed me. Jesus delivered me and he can deliver you too. You just need to give your life to him. And this woman was enraged. And so that woman, the interpreter, she was reprimanded as well. Okay. So uh, they both sued. It made it all the way up to the Court of Appeals, um, the Second Circuit back in 2001. And so if I could have the Knight case, please. So essentially the court's ruling, it's horrific. The court ruled, at a minimum, the Establishment Clause prohibits government from appearing to take a position on questions of religious belief. Thus, the interest of the state in avoiding an Establishment Clause violation may be a compelling one, that is a compelling interest, justifying an abridgment of free exercise of otherwise protected by the First Amendment. So what does that mean? That means that the court recognizes that those women both had First Amendment rights to preach the gospel, but giving the appearance of the government agreeing with that belief was enough to say, you're not allowed to say that. So in that balancing test, the court weighs establishment clause way more heavily than our for other First Amendment rights, because there can't be an appearance that the government agrees with the gospel. So we went from the state can't say what your religion is to there can't even be an appearance of the gospel. Okay, we're reaping what we've sown, people. This is like... And so, um, so basically what that means, if you're a government employee, it means that you can't talk about the gospel if there's anybody in public. You, private conversations among coworkers, that's still okay. But in public, you, you, you have no free speech rights. You have no free exercise rights. Am I telling you to not preach the gospel when you're at work? Absolutely not. I am telling you to do what those women did. Obey the Holy Spirit. You need to make sure that you are so intimately connected with the Holy Spirit and that you're, that, that, that you are moving where He tells you to move and you're speaking when He tells you to speak because He's gonna open a door for you and He's gonna prod you just like He did that woman to say, preach the gospel, preach the gospel, and it's up to you to obey. Okay? Remember, those women, I didn't know these women, but I imagine that they lived knowing, believing, trusting that no matter what, one day every knee will bow and every mouth will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And each and every single one of us is going to have to give an accounting for every deed done and every idle word spoken. And so they obeyed that, not the government. Okay? And so, but that is where we are now. We don't have rights, but we obey the Holy Spirit. We don't obey the government. Okay? So that's establishment clause. Um, now we're on to free exercise. So um, the free exercise clause is, I think I'm done with this. So I'm going to set this down so I have more space. Okay, so the free exercise clause, um, that basically is our freedom to practice our religion. So that's best understood by reading the annotated. So you know how we have like study Bibles that have the commentary from biblical scholars? Well, in the Constitution, we have the same thing. It has commentary from the legal scholars. And so, oh, actually, I do need that. And so um, I'm going to read the annotated. I just like books. I don't like. And so I'm going to read the annotated. If you could put up the... Um, annotated constitution, please. So this is just the annotated specifically as it relates to our free exercise. Okay. 
And so the annotated is the free exercise clause's purpose is to secure religious liberty in the individual by prohibiting any invasions there by civil authority. So what this says is, hey, you, your right to freely exercise your religion cannot be invaded by evaded upon by the government. So I imagine you're sitting there thinking, well, it sure seems like the government has invaded upon my right to freely exercise over the last nine months. Why is that? Let's keep reading. So then it says, but when it comes to protecting conduct, it has long been held that the free exercise clause does not necessarily prevent the government from requiring or forbidding an act. Yeah, so where we are now is the government can't regulate your thoughts, can't regulate your belief, but they can regulate your conduct. And so that's how the government is getting by with all these COVID restrictions. Because what the government is saying is, we're not infringing upon your right to worship Jesus, we're just infringing upon how you worship him. So that's where we are on free speech. This is, yeah, and so... um what does that look like? What does infringing upon our conduct look like? Well, there's a test um, that the courts apply, and it's basically that the, the infringement, the prohibition, the law, it must be neutral and generally applicable, okay? So neutral meaning it's not targeting um, a specific group, and generally applicable is that it applies to everybody, okay? And so um, basically what the government is saying here in our state is all these laws against the church of when to open and at what capacity, those are neutral and generally and gender applicable because lots of people have been required to close, right? Wrong, okay? The very fact that we have two categories, essential and non-essential, by definition makes it not neutral and not generally applicable. The fact that one person, i.e. Jay Inslee, is able to create these two categories and decide who is essential and who is non-essential, by definition makes it not neutral and not generally applicable, okay? So these COVID, these COVID restrictions are unconstitutional. They do not survive the test, even if we allow the restricting the conduct because that's where we are today with our free exercise clause, it still doesn't pass that test. Does that make sense? Um, so why does Inslee have all this power? I should stop naming him. Why does our governor have, <laughs> why does, sorry, oh, why does, why does our governor have so much power? Okay. Well, that's going to require us talking about from where does the executive branch get his power, okay? So we're going to talk about my absolute favorite case um, that deals with executive powers because to understand why the governor is able to do what he's able to do, you have to understand executive powers, okay? So this case um, is Youngston versus Smith, and uh, it's the legal community. We just call it the steel seizure case. It was back in 1952. And what happened is, you know, when North Korea invaded South Korea, that we entered into the Korean War. And at that same time, the Union steel workers went on strike. And so President Truman was like, wait a minute, you guys can't go on strike. I need your steel for our war efforts. Mind you, all of these steel mills were privately owned businesses, okay? So these men who own these businesses, they sacrificed their time. They risked their fortune to build these businesses. They were paying their employees by out of their own income. And President Truman was just like, no, 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 no. I need that. And just so you know, and that's happening today, right now in our state, 
it's called eminent domain and it's a violation of both the fifth and the 14th amendment. You know what I'm talking about. And so what they're doing is they are the government. If the government takes private property and uses it for public use without paying that private owner, that's a violation of the fifth and 14th amendment. Okay. So Truman did that. And, um, Truman was like, no, and I wish I could go into the whole story about what happened with this case because it's like so much drama and corruption and politics and everything, but we just don't have time. But basically, Truman was like, no, no, no. I'm the president of the United States, and I've declared a state of emergency, so I can do whatever I want because I have executive powers when there's a state of emergency. And the Supreme Court gave him the smack down. They were like, no, you don't have that power. And much more eloquently than I'm saying it right now, but essentially... <laughs> What the Supreme Court, what the Supreme Court said was, look, I don't care if it's a state of emergency. I don't care if you're the president of the United States. Your powers come from the Constitution or a law that says you have that power. Okay. Why is that? Because, and we don't have the time to get into all of this, um, but the Constitution created three different branches of government, the executive, the legislative, and the judicial. You guys probably learned that in elementary school, right? And the reason they did that was so that we have what's called the checks and balances, right? And separation of powers. So then that way, one person or one entity can't have so much power. Because remember, the power belongs to we the people, right? And so that's what the judicial branch said. The judicial branch said, whoa, executive branch, you can't do that. That is unlimited power. And so basically, the only time... And so on a federal level, this case applies both federal and state level. On the federal level, it's to the president. And on the state level, it's to the governor, okay? Because here in the state, the executive branch is the governor. And so essentially, this, the ruling, and this case was from 1952, but it's still good law. This has never been overturned. Um, and so essentially, the ruling was that you have to have your authority from either the Constitution or a law. And Truman didn't have either, okay? And so the court ruled. Can I have the steel seizure case up, please? Um, so the court ruled, and I love this opinion so much because I'm just, I'm, I just, I can't stand government. Exerting um, too much power. And so the court said, the example of such unlimited executive power that must have most impressed. And so here, impressed does not mean like, oh wow, that was great. Impressed here means like shocked, okay? So the example of such unlimited executive power that must have most shocked the forefathers was the prerogative exercised by George III. So remember, George III was the king of England during the time that we revolted against England. Um, and descriptions of its evil. So Justice Jackson wrote the opinion of the court. Well, he the concurring opinion of the court. And Justice Jackson described the, the power that King George exerted over the American people. He described it as evil, right? And it was evil because we don't worship the king, right? And so he said, the evils in the Declaration of Independence leads me to doubt that they were creating their new executive in his image. That's my favorite part of the whole case. So what they're saying is the men who risked everything to fight against the most powerful nation in the world because they wanted to flee the religious persecution and be able to freely worship Jesus, there is no way that then they then created an executive branch that is just going to replace King George, okay? And so... um so that's the standard. That is the standard all across our country with regard to the executive branch. So you're probably wondering, well, why does our executive branch in our state have so much power? <sighs> well, <laughs> in our state, because our state just loves big government, our state created a law that gives him the power. Yeah. 
So that law is RCW 43-60220. And if you could pull up the RCW, please. So I'm not going to put the whole... I didn't put the whole RCW up. Sorry, 4306-220. I didn't put the whole... RCW up because it's so lengthy. The power that statute gives him is ridiculous. I just put up the stuff that pertains to the body of Christ, okay? So the first part basically says when the governor issues or declares it's a state of emergency, and I I should say that a state of emergency defined in our laws, in our state anyway, a state of emergency is something that requires immediate action, okay? So I want you to remember that because it's going to be important in a few minutes. It requires immediate action. So basically that's saying that if the governor declares a state of emergency, the governor is allowed to then prohibit all of these things. He's allowed to prohibit B, the gathering, right? And so that's how the governor has been able to say when the church is open and what capacity because if he declares a state of emergency, he has the authority now to limit or shut down all gatherings, okay? The next part is section H, which then um, is basically any anything that he thinks is reasonable. And so that is so vague and so overbroad. Anything that you think is reasonable to help maintain life, health, and property, that is unlimited power. And by the way, a violation of that is a gross misdemeanor. That's punishable by up to 364 days in jail and $5,000 in fines. And so it's from H where he gets the authority to do like the mask mandate and the social distancing mandate. He gets that from H, okay? And so what does this mean for us now? Is it game over? Is it like, okay, we live in this state that created this law? No, it's absolutely not game over. Because remember what we talked about last week, we have authority to challenge the constitutionality of laws. And that's what needs to happen. This law needs to be challenged. This law needs to be taken up to the court. And the the court needs to find this law unconstitutional. Why is this law unconstitutional? Okay, number one. This law has absolutely no time limit. Most other states also have, I think, I think almost all other states have laws similar to this, giving the governor authority if it's a state of emergency, okay? But most of the other states have a time limit, and it's usually 30 days, okay? And so all the other states were like, okay, right, in a state of emergency, it requires immediate action, right? And so immediate action, they give the governor deference during that time, and they give him grace during that time, and they're like, you know, it's an emergency. We don't have time to vet all the information and discern what to do, so governor, we're going to give you authority to make some decisions while we figure things out, okay? So by definition, an emergency should not be nine months, right? To me, 30 days is even generous. To me, emergency is like 14 days, you know, but most states do 30. We have no time limit on this statute. That means our governor has indefinite, unlimited power. That goes... That goes so far against our constitution that it's like, it's absurd, okay? The second, so that's the first reason this law is unconstitutional. There has no time limit. The second reason is there's no checks and balance. Remember we talked about the three branches of government? So in the other states that have this law, they say, okay, governor, if you've exceeded this amount of time that you've declared a state of emergency, that you've issued a proclamation, that you've issued a mandate, if it's exceeded that amount of time, then you have to get approval from the legislature, and so that's a checks and balance. If our governor had to get approval from the legislature, who knows how that would turn out because our house isn't exactly pro-constitution. But it still is some checks and balance. It still is something that is a roadblock between the unlimited um, power, unlimited and also the, the, the never-ending, right? And so our law doesn't have um, that checks and balance system. And it's also not neutral and generally applicable, which we already talked about. 
And so, you know, what, what do we do now? Like, do you remember the way that a, a, a law gets challenged? If somebody has to get arrested or somebody has to get fined, and then you challenge that and you take it up to the court. And so am I saying that we go storm the beaches of Olympia and say, no, we can't do this? I know some people want to do that, but that's not, that's not what I'm saying we do. Okay. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying that we do is if you are going to go into the battle for the kingdom of God, you have to do it with the Holy Spirit. Okay. You have to, the worst thing that you can do entering into the, into a battle is, well, the worst thing you can do is do it when you have unrepentant sin in your heart. So like get that right first. Okay. So, so first, you know, get, get your heart, get your mind right, get aligned with God's word. But assuming you don't, you're not walking in unrepentant sin, assuming you're walking in his righteousness, the worst thing that you can do going into battle is doing it, relying on your own strength or doing it relying on your own understanding. Because if you do it relying on your own strength, you're going to grow weary. You're going to get tired of being beaten up. You're going to get tired of everybody hating you. And But if you do it on the strength of the Lord, then you know that, man, all I need is his presence, right? His grace is sufficient, right? But then, and if you do it on your own understanding then you're just going to create a mess. You're going to create a mess. Because remember the Acts church that Luke wrote about how the apostles, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit from going here, or they were told by the Holy Spirit to go here, or they were told by the Spirit to, to change direction. They were completely submitted to the Holy Spirit and just heard from him and did that. So the Holy Spirit is going to open the doors that we need open, is going to close the doors that we need closed, and is going to guide us in that. And so ultimately we need to get prepared. We need to get to prepared to go into battle because our rights in some cases are just pretty much non-existent at this point. And we do have a governor in our state with unlimited power and no time limit as to his power. And so get prepared, Christian, get prepared and get, get your hearts and minds ready. And, uh, let's go. Amen. Thank you. Praise God. So like, the so... short version is. <laughs> Praise God. Thank that's you. why we're still having church. <laughs> and that's why I'm not wearing a mask. Um, I, I just want to thank you again, Tiffany, for doing such an amazing job. So good. So good. Um, and I just want to remind you guys, at, moving forward, like, and if you didn't already know this, we just need to stick together. Amen. Gosh, we need each other more now than we've ever needed each other. And especially if things just continue to go the way that they're going. Um, I don't know. You said someone had to get arrested to challenge the law. So I don't know. We'll see what happens. Bring me a cake with a file in it and be good. All right. Let's stand up. Let's pray. Oh. Would you guys join me? Let's, let's thank the Lord for tonight, but let's, can we just spend a few moments praying for our nation too? Father, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for blessing Tiffany with such great intellect. God, that you've sent her on a path to know the law, to be able to teach us. God, would you just bless the Gustafsons tonight, Lord? Just bless them. Bless the work of their hands. Bless their marriage. Father, collectively tonight, as your people, Lord, we pray for our nation. God, that you would uh, just bring righteousness upon this land, God. Father, we've seen the end and we know it's coming, but God, would you just give a reprieve so that we could preach the gospel more, that we could bring more people into your kingdom. 
God, we want more people to be able to worship you for all eternity, Lord. So we just pray for a reprieve so that we could do a do another harvest, God, an end-time revival, Lord, that more people would come to know your saving grace. Father, we pray that you would keep our minds right. Father, we pray that we would not be cowards, that we would have courage. God, in this season, now more than ever, with our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, the people that we meet, that we would have the boldness to share your gospel. God, prepare our hearts for what's coming ahead, Lord, that we would have courage, unbelievable Holy Spirit-infused courage, courage to speak, courage to act, courage to not act. God, that we would trust in you. Father, you've never failed and you're not starting now. God, we're fed, we're protected. We, we are walking in your grace, God. So we just thank you for that, Jesus. God, I pray for every parent here tonight, Lord, that they would have the courage to impress upon their children. Impress, not introduce, impress. Demand upon their children to serve you, God. Father, I pray that Faith and Victory Church would be a beacon of light in these times. God, that you would draw people to, to our fellowship, that you would draw people to this church, God, that we would uh, not be known for any other reason except we're a church that is totally and completely devoted to you, God. No other idols, no other things to worship, God, that we would only worship you and you alone, God. Father, let your word be known. Father, we pray that you would go with us tonight. God, that you would lead us home safely. Father, we'd have a good night and rest. God, that you would prepare hearts for Sunday's message and time together. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Are we cut? Are we out? Hey, we want to thank you so much for being online with us today. I want to remind you, if you're not a follower on Facebook, please like our page on YouTube. Please subscribe. Follow us on Twitter. Tell all your friends. Continue to watch online. We thank you for watching. We love you so much. Have a great day.